Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med en af Dagbladet Informations absolute yndlingsforfatter. Det er den tyrkiske forfatter Orhan Pamuk. Pamuk er født i 1952. Han er vokset op i den tyrkiske overklasse i kvarteret Nishantashi i Istanbul. Meget af sit liv har han faktisk boet i familiens gamle bygning Pamuk Apartments. Det særlige ved Pamuk er, at han på den ene side er en meget vestlig, og på den anden side er en meget tyrkisk forfatter. Og at de to ting hænger sammen hos ham på en måde, så vi også forstår, hvorfor det hænger sammen i det tyrkiske samfund og i de sidste 100 års tyrkiske historie. Han er på den ene side, det siger han også selv, en meget vestlig forfatter, der er født og opvokset med og præget af den vestlige kanon, den vestlige roman. Han kan litteraturhistorien på fingrene, han kan det meget, meget nemt. På den anden side har han også en meget stor følelse for det osmaniske rige, den tyrkiske historie, den tyrkiske kultur og den tyrkiske litteratur. Han kender på den ene side til bestræbelsen på at blive så vestlig som muligt, som ligesom var det tyrkiske samfunds officielle retning i det 21. århundrede. Man skulle gøre op med den traditionelle tyrkiske kultur, og man skulle blive så vestlig som muligt, fordi sådan fik man social fremgang, og sådan lavede man fremskridt i verden. På den anden side kender han også ubehaget ved det, og skammen over at skulle udradere sin gamle kultur, nostalgien efter det, der bliver tabt, sansningen af alt muligt af det, som bliver udraderet af moderniteten. Mødet mellem Østen og Vesten, mellem tradition og modernitet, mellem civilisation og det, der står imod, går hele vejen igennem Orhan Pamuks forfatterskab på en måde, så man forstår det nærmest fysisk. Og man forstår hos Pamuk, hvorfor konflikten mellem Østen og Vesten bliver til sociale kampe i Tyrkiet, mellem den overklasse, der vil pådutte folk på landet, deres livsform, og dem på landet, der insisterer på deres kultur og deres traditioner mod et alt for stort og autoritært overjej. Man forstår også, hvorfor det bliver en konflikt i hvert enkelt menneske. Og en Pamuks nye bog, som vores interview handler om, er en roman på 700 sider, der hedder Pestnetter. Det står som et hovedværk i hele Pamuks forfatterskab, fordi alle hans store temaer er præsent i det. Det foregår omkring århundredeskiftet, altså år 1900-skiftet i, på den fiktive ø Mingeria, hvor en delegation fra Istanbul ankommer og skal hjælpe øen med at blive fri fra byllepesten, som netop er kommet til øen. På den måde bliver det et sammenstød mellem civilisationen, der udgår fra Istanbul og provinsen, der er på den her fiktive ø. Men det bliver også til et sammenstød mellem de etniske minoriteter på øen, hvor tyrkerne ikke vil underkaste sig karantænen, mens der er kristne, som siger, at man skal underkaste sig karantænen. Så den karantæne, som man bruger for at bekæmpe byllepesten, bliver til en slags civilisationstest på øen. Det bliver til et kæmpe stort drama. Det bliver til en kærlighedshistorie. Det bliver til en kriminalhistorie. Det bliver til en historisk roman. Men først og fremmest er det nok Orhan Pamuks mest politiske roman. For den handler om byllepest, den handler om sammenstød, den handler om civilisation, og den handler om karantæne. Men nedenunder ligger der, sådan her bliver et autoritært samfund etableret. Og han forklarer også selv, at han skrev faktisk romanen for at kunne vise folk, hvordan Erdogans Tyrkiet blev mere og mere autoritært, og hvad der var fundamentet for det. Her følger min samtale med Orhan Pamuk. Han sidder ude på øen 
Byky Yardar, som ligger halvanden time fra Istanbul, hvor han er flyttet ud nu. Forbindelsen er ikke helt optimal. Det er til enkelt Pamuks pointer. Jeg håber, I vil have fornøjelse af det. Well, first, congratulations with this book. I know it's not entirely new for you, but it's entirely new for us here in Denmark that it, that it's come out, and it's such an impressive work. I want to ask you first about your personal security situation, uh, because we know that that you were under protection after you made some remarks in 2005. And then I read somewhere that there was an investigation about some insulting remarks that you've been in the novel about Kemal Atatürk that I don't find. So how is your security situation now? Well, my security question, I'm inclined to give a funny answer, you know, yeah. a light answer is a sort of an allegory for Turkey. I used to have three guards. Now I have only one, which means Turkey is improving. And we have to respect that. <laughs> that that's a good answer. But but are you free when you're speak when you're writing to speak and write whatever you want to say? Who is free? I don't think I am as free as someone in New York or uh, Copenhagen and uh, London. Maybe I am free because I am the famous Pamuk, but no one is free here. So don't focus on me. No one is politically free here. You know, I live in an island here and there are local politics here, but everyone is also aware of huge burden of censors, no free speech. Not that people will inform you go to a jail like in Stalin times or Adolf Hitler times, but it's not published. Then if you go too much, then you go in jail. And it's not novelists like me who are in the forefront of political fight, but journalists. I have so many journalist friends. Some of them are in here in vacation in this island that go into jail, come out of the jail. Uh, I see them in the street. They say, oh, it was nice. I read all the books that I haven't read when I was outside. So people are used to going to jail here in this country for their ideas because Erdogan developed a democracy without free speech. If you can have a democracy without free speech. I, I know this is the great experiment of, of Turkey and, and other countries as as well, where are the limits of democracy? If we go to your book, uh, we have the great themes of your work in Knights of Plague, uh, the conflict between East and West, and how Western influence comes from outside, creates internal divisions in society, tradition and, and modernity. But then we have this plague, which is something quite new and quite rare. There are very few plague novels, I think, in the history of the novel. How did you come up with the idea of writing a plague novel? I've been thinking of writing plague novel for 30 years. Albert Camus' novel, Plague, may be an influence. Manzoni, which I quoted at the beginning of my book, may be under Italianist Manzoni, whose The Betroth is the um, biggest Italian war and peace. It's an cl Italian classic. And there is a 30 pages of description of plague in that novel, which is wonderful. I always thought that I would do something like that. And I've been thinking about a plague novel. There is plague in my White Castle, which is published in the, and also there is a professor searching for plague in my silent house, historical plague. So I would set this more medieval Ottoman times 
but then I changed my mind, partly because really that reading and reading and reading so many books, PhDs, histories about plague. One thing I learned is this, that once there is plague, first that humanity always behaves the same. First they deny, then numbers go up. The politicians, the numbers go up. Then the only way of survival is imposition of quarantine. And that can only happen when governments get authoritarian. So my mind was also thinking of this plague novel for 30 years, was always thinking of a political novel. Then, some six years ago, Erdogan, uh, Erdogan government began to get increasingly authoritarian. And I began to say, oh, okay, why don't I write my historical, uh, allegorical, Tolstoyan plague novel now where people will see it will operate as a detailed Tolstoyan realistic novel that I started writing this novel three and a half years before the coronavirus pandemic started. And that was also a shock because I was reading, researching, trying to explain how quarantine feels to normal people. Suddenly it all spread to the world. Uh, it felt as if my intimate world spread about the world. First, I felt guilty. Then my friends begin to call me, oh, you're so lucky. In the same weeks, my aunt, who was 92 years old, one of the first week plague in Istanbul, lived three streets away from me. So I, I was also sad, not never felt lucky. And I wrote an article about all this, and it was published all over the world. Then another consequence was all of my publishers begin to send me emails saying, Orhan, please finish your novel so that, you know, suddenly my esoteric novel, which my friends told me no one would read, it's so esoteric and long about all time, suddenly get to be a bit of actuality, sort of a news thematic novel. I don't think I complain about that. I was a boy listening to what the government saying, not leaving my house, getting my shots. And in fact, I did not get it. Um, and I published a novel two years ago, by the around the time that this, there was still pandemic. I did interviews with masks and so forth and so on. I think for for many for some of the writers who wrote about the plague, like uh, Albert Camus or Daniel Defoe. They never experienced it themselves. But here you get the experience of the lockdown and the oh. quarantine. And how, how did that affect your writing? That you're all of a in sudden... In fact, I was joking to my friends when I was writing in the first three and a half years. You know, the best books about plague are written by people who never experienced any pandemic. Uh, Albert like that, Daniel Defoe was, and I'm the third one. Then suddenly I experienced it. Uh, how did I feel? First, I was nervous because people would think that I wrote the book after the coronavirus. So I made it clear that I began writing this novel three and a half years ago. I wrote this article that I referred to you. So I was also worried about people saying, actually, it's not a historical novel. I'm talking to today. So I wanted to put a distance to the today's events. But it was almost impossible because some of the things we always do during the pandemic 
what we feel, the way we deny, the way we begin and invent gossip about it. Muslims bought it, Jews bought it, Christians bought it, Americans bought it, imperialism, so on and so on. There are so essential things that humanity repeats itself. But I think in this coronavirus, there are also original things that humanity did, unlike pre previous pandemics, unlike previous quarantines. The first thing was information that we were all watching New York, governor of New York, you know, everyone, there was a center to the world. If you read Daniel Defoe, you see it. A guy from North London, a guy from South London cross. This is the only information. What's there? And he says, horrible, horrible. And what's South? It's horrible, horrible. While in our coronavirus pandemic, immense, extravagant information. What's happening? How they are burning the dead in India. How they are doing in America. How they are doing in Turkey. We were informed. And the second thing that humanity in the last hundred years really educated itself that is millions and millions of people more or less know what is a virus, what is a microbe, how does it transmit. They are political deniers or uh, populist deniers, but more or less humanity realizes what's happening. In old times, it was all magic. Ottomans developed so, sort of magic things, beads. Humanity before us were helpless. There were a, a selected few, more or less, had a sense of quarantine and what should be done. And the people imposed powers. Most of the time, they were well-meaning, but they were also taking an opportunity, grabbing the power, or sometimes governments were collapsing. Ottomans used to go to east, to west, or wherever to, in summertime for Ottomans for hundreds of hundreds of years is to hunt new open wars, hunt new, get new lands. And when uh, a lot of times when Ottoman army returned back, they left and, uh, Istanbul and there will be plague in Istanbul or some sort of pandemic in Istanbul and they would not return, you know, they would wait. The whole Ottoman elite and the army would wait outside the Istanbul in some ground and then waiting for the pandemic in Istanbul because sometimes these pandemies come back in every summer. We would wait outside. Yes, very interesting. You can write about whole humanity through pandemic and I can talk endlessly. Maybe I'll pick up your next question. Yes. In the beginning of the book, the narrator, who has certain resemblances to you, but she's also a woman, but she has the same definition of the novel as I find in one of your essays. Uh, she tells very, she emphasizes the, the difference between writing history and the works of fiction. And this goes through the novel that we have to see history unfolding. And then we're afterwards told this is how history is construed. Why did you emphasize this all the way through the book? It makes a lot of interesting ironies and a lot of wisdom. But why did you emphasize it so, uh, so much through the book? I like to show the people that fabrication of truth, fabrication of a nation, then you build up a nation, Turkish nation. There are Turks, of course, yes, but there is an artificial thing that a fabrication of a nation based on a language that some national myths, which are fabricated, made big, which you read in school, which people believe as if stories, religious stories, 
I love showing there actually details that will perhaps be more vital, captivating if we show them in a novel. Somehow, because I am subject horrors of nationalism in Turkey, the nationalist country, uh, always go to trial or this, then I also like to deconstruct, de show the workings on artificiality of national myths. Not that I don't like Atatürk, I respect, but there is also a national founder, and that's why I end up in another trial saying insulting Kemal Atatürk and criticizing Kemal Atatürk in this novel. Uh, and there is not someone like him except that there is a founder of Turkish Republic, but there are so many mean, nasty political People, they attack you, they have a case, then they're embarrassed, maybe it's getting too big, they don't know what to do with me. But the novel is not directed in anything particular, as I said. The only thing it's directed is authoritarianism of My novel, on the other hand, not only about that, it is an epic joys of seeing, inventing daily life. Um, writing about the decay of Ottoman bureaucracy. You know, towards the end of the book, there are all these Ottoman bureaucrats who are put all in a boat and they're kicked out of Minger and they lost Mingeria. You know, these people were my grandmother's fathers. You understand? I used to grandmother in 1960s, 1950s, and he would have on the walls pictures of these old Turkish doctors, pashas, Ottomans. These things I like because it's my world. There is a very personal side to my novel. And there is also the side of how humanity behave under fear, under pandemic. And then there's, uh, there's this very beautiful nostalgia for the lost world also in, in, in the novel. Uh, what was it like? Because the story is told by a descendant of of, uh, of a princess of, of the Ottoman Empire. What was it like for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not destroying anything. Hey, well, okay. I also wanted to, to chat about, talk about a bit Ottoman aristocracy. Um, that's my whole aim. But this, I all care about representing them because especially in Europe, not in the United States, when they you say when they say a Turk, they always think about a peasant who is looking for a job in high class, upper class, distinguished Ottoman aristocratic, culturally uh, uh, sophisticated elite. And I also want to remind my international readers, hey, Turks are not only peasants who are working in factory in Germany or Europe, but there is also a sophisticated uh, uh, Ottoman elite. I sometimes feel nostalgic because I feel like talking about my mother's father. There's also a certain, we see the creation of the new state here. Uh, in, in the novel, we follow how this state is, is being created. And then near the end of the book, there's a very interesting reflection on nationalism. Uh, that that you said once at Camille's time, nationalism yeah. wasn't Every, noble. First of all, it used to be a noble thing in, 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 until 1950s, especially in Africa. Nationalism is an anti-imperialistic nothing. Now in Turkey, in many Western countries, it is a, a very a reactionary 
a, a thing that legitimizes what the government and the state does. It's repressive. But on the other hand, everyone, 90% is domestic in Turkey. So, <laughs> yes. I thought it was very funny because- It's here, an ugly we, thing. But, but I think sometimes when we see how the Ukrainians are fighting to defend their own land, we are reminded that nationalism can also be a good thing. That's what I thought when I read it. But it's a rare situation now that the nationalism is uh, um, when you are fighting back against an invader and an oppressor. Only in that situation is a, an uh, honorable thing. After the second generation, it is a repressive thing. It is used for uh, suppressing minorities, suppressing immigrants suppressing critics of the state and the government. This is how it is used in the rest of the world. Well, something that's very interesting in the novel is, is how the quarantine functions. If the quarantine is almost like a test of civilization, and we see groups that are against it, groups that are in favor, and we have this sheikh who is in, against the quarantine, but then says in the end that if the Muslims don't obey the quarantine, there will be more Christians than Muslims. So he ends up being in favor of the quarantine. <laughs> that, is, that, that is a very good point, I think. If you look at how the quarantine was handled today uh, and then in, in the time of, of the novel, do you think it's become different the way we, we think of it? You can, instead of quarantine, if you say sterilization or modernity or less, the, my novel approaches it the same way. It is inevitable if you care about the well-being of your name, modernization, while they react to it, they're clumsy with it, they feel they're betraying. I, I am a novelist, so I have to understand why they don't want modernity. I have so many characters. This is my 11th novel that I wrote about people who react to modernity in various ways, whether they're religious or whether they're ultra-nationalist fanatics or whether they are old-fashioned, whether all whether they are also purists who want the, do not want their culture to be changed. Once you begin the modernization, you begin to change. And outside of Europe, this is the eternal subject of cultural controversy. Um, is modernization uh, a betrayal of the national idea, the national essence of the nation, spirit of the nation? But the dilemma is this, I think, um, non-Western world, which I mostly think my novels represent, although I feel I'm a Western person in many ways, uh, in non-Western world, they all want a modernization. And then they all want to be themselves all the time. My black book is about a person who is obsessed being himself. He cannot be himself, but also you want to be an individual. Uh, and he that is also a betrayal. Or nations want to be modern, join the modern, but they lose something. They, they lose something in their purity, in their nationness. Yes, there is a price. These subjects are a sort of a the whole national culture talking to itself in a nutshell can be reduced to how is modernization a good thing or shall we use our identity?
Well, I think that's one of the things I learned through reading your books is how complex modernization works, that it also creates social classes and it becomes a way of distinction in Turkish society. We've learned a lot from that, but there's a very funny thing in this new novel uh, with Sherlock Holmes. And I think that's a very funny way of making the two positions meet, that there's the Sherlock Holmes way and then there's the Turkish way. Two different ways of solving a crime. And of course, Sherlock Holmes way is the Western deductive reasoning. You don't have to study the world. And the Turkish way is with the real people. Tell us about this uh, conflict between the Sherlock Holmes way and the Turkish way. Okay. Um, I wrote partly about this in My Name is Red. My Name is Red is also a philosophical novel about Westernization. It focuses more on individuality and painting. Here, I'm doing it the same, but this time I'm focusing on governance, politics, the structure of the state. Let me give you an example. In Ottoman times, the, the famous legal system, Suleiman the Great, and um, when there was a crime committed in a neighborhood, the government would not send a police an investigator. The government would send the Sherlock Holmes in 16th century in Suleiman times, but the government would go and go to the chief or political religious leader of neighborhood and say, the murderer in your neighborhood give me murderer. If not, I'll punish you. Hmm. So it was the group uh, which was accused. And the problem and the instrument of the detective, individual responsibility did not exist. In fact, that's why there were no novels written by that in that time. Uh, so if, if you want to be modern, then the government should operate like Sherlock Holmes. Perhaps that's why Abdul Hamid loved Sherlock Holmes, because although it was a reactionary, a nationalist and political Islamist, on the other hand, culturally, economically, as an engineer, Abdul Hamid was a great modernizer, wanted to see build hospitals, factories, railroads, development, borrow money, a lot of social structure to the government. Um, but on the other hand, if you do this, then you have to also modernize government structure. But once you do that, then your reactionary social ideas contradict what you do as an engineer because personal responsibility uh, develops and a new legal theory, a new modern legality should be there. But it's also funny, humane, believable, daily life. It's not people discuss things, but we see these things, and I hope they see. And it is also plays around this, also wants to be a detective novel, wants to look at the things through, uh, the, through the eye of the emergence of cultural modernity, while the government may resist, maybe Abdul Hamid resists things that will not be appropriate for Islam, while on the run he's doing so much that individuality develops, legal system changes, yes. Ah, that's very interesting. I was wondering, you've been writing about this modernization process for decades and exploring it in your novels in, in, in new ways. Did your own 
persistent on this change over time, do you see it differently now than you did, say, 30 or 40 years ago? Yes, good, uh, good point. Yes, um, uh, I am used to have pay more attention to antinomies, inner contradictions of westernization and nationalism. And I would, in my youth, I would be going more to show, well, you are doing this, but actually you are doing that. Well, you want this, but it contradicts that. It's a scandal, used to say, some 30 years ago, 25 years ago. I don't say it's a scandal. Now I have learned that it is, in fact, what is being done in all over the world that is inevitable. I get your, in what your questions. We talk about it in my Hegelianism. I'll begin yes. to get more Hegelian that accepting these things than my more political you, while my subject is the same. I am not pointing out my with my finger and saying, you idiot, you know, what you want will destroy you. But I think now I understood this is humanity. In, in every Turk, both wants to be modern and European, more or less, even the political Islamists, even Erdogan. And every Turk wants to be a pure Turk, which is contrary in the end. <laughs> That's a great point. Because, yes, I was thinking about this Hegel because he's so prominent in snow. And then you refer to the Hegelian uh, system here. So it's fair that I think of you as somewhat Hegelian novelist now. Yes, I agree. Um, but the subject of Hegel is too, too floating. <laughs> Let's skip it. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, let, let me ask you uh, here in the end about something else. Your, your colleague, you're a great master of the novel, and I think one of the great things about reading your work is that it connects the current world that we live in with the world of Balzac and Dickens and Tolstoy. I think we're still in that world. Uh, but your colleague, uh, Amitav Ghosh, said something that we interviewed him about uh, a couple of months ago. He said that the modern literary imagination cannot deal with climate change because if you go back to Dickens and Balzac, he would say, well, they always presuppose that everything that's interesting is happening within persons and between persons. And they presuppose that the nature is predictable and mechanic. So he says, well, we should challenge literature to open up to another dimension of understanding nature. He, of course, also says something that you also have written, that the modern novel is a Western phenomenon. Do you see climate change as a challenge to the novel as an institution? Climate change is a subject but not as a challenge to the novel, that it will not change the novel. It is a subject, and like most subjects we have, that we can only fight it back politically, get organized, impose things, put bans. You can't do that. You can't do that. It can only be solved politically. So it is a subject, but it will not change our humanity too much. In my youth, progress meant... Uh, um, conquering nature, making a railroad, cutting forests so that you go through one end to the other. And this progressing and self-celebrating engineering or building beton, making factories, progress was this. In that sense, I agree with Amitav. While on the other hand, that it's a political subject, 
that we have to address it more with our novels, but it's hard, uh, on the other hand, to grasp. I think Europeans are doing, uh, doing it, but look so quickly in Libya, then it's all, all about disaster. I think humanity, starting from North, uh, North Europe, is getting to be more tender, more uh, sensitive to nature. This is the first thing that saying from green movement, from climate change. We may be a bit late, but in the end, it is a very political subject. Don't forget that there are Europeans invented. There are green parties. That is, the climate change is first addressed by green parties, and it's a political movement now, while, of course, all humanity is now very busy about the subject. So I have just one last question for you, which is, to me, you are the great student of how the West works in non-Western countries. My wife is from Iran, so she helps me a little bit as well. But when you look at how the world is responding to the war in Ukraine, you know, it's very, we see that authoritarian leaders from India, China, Brazil, they have taken up the anti-colonial speech of the Western discourse saying, well, we don't want to be part of your colonial war. We don't want to be part of the West. We want to be respected for, for who we are. It seems to me that the Western self-criticism and the anti-colonial discourse has now been taken over by non-Western countries and they're kind of pressuring us. And they have some historical right, but it's also difficult because they're authoritarian leaders. How do you think we should okay. deal with I disagree. I disagree with this discourse and putting national identity before universal concepts like freebie. In the end, that's what they are doing. When India, North Korea, uh, uh, or, or sometimes uh, other countries line up with Putin and say, we want to be Western imperialists, it is all lies that they don't care about democracy, human rights, free speech. These are my values. Nail identity is a fabricated thing that I'm telling you about in 700 pages, <laughs> it's not more important than free speech. It is a vehicle abuse of free speech, suppressing minorities, suppressing democracy. I'm not against West. I have seen that every time someone says I'm against West anti-imperialist, most of the time it, they, they do this to hide the fact that they're suppressing democracy, free speech, criticism of the government. I am sad to see India is lining and China is lining with Russia. I, uh, moral, uh, this, this is old authoritarian, authoritarian system. I am a Turk who all my life for 72 years, I believe in Western values. And for me, this is free speech, democracy, human dignity, individuality. These are my values. Yes, they clash with national identity, flag, wars, national history. They clash. My books are about this. Well, thank you very much for your time. <laughs> and thank you for this wonderful book. You've been such an inspiration for us, helping us understand the world. Thank you, Orhan Pamuk. It was a pleasure talking to you. 
I am happy that Zoom allows us to speak. It was good to communicate. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure and honor to talk to you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Det her var min samtale med vores meget meget afholdte forfatter Orhan Pamuk. Hans nye roman Pestnetter er netop udkommet på forladet Gyldendal. Den her samtale var redigeret og klippet af vores rigtig gode kammerat Mas Adam Wiener. I næste uge skal vi som sædvanligt et helt andet sted hen. Den britisk-kroatiske historiker Peter Frankopan har skrevet et kæmpe værk om naturens historie. Det er en verdenshistorie, hvor naturen er hovedperson, og mennesket er en biperson, der hedder Earth Transformed. Den tur tager vi i næste uge. Tak for, at I lyttede med nu. Jeg håber også, at vi hører os ved i næste uge.